Welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. It's harvest time. It's the bountiful time of fall. And I know someone who's especially sad when this time does not make it into the winter, the amazing fruits and vegetables that are no longer around in a couple of months. And so, mostly for Mark... We're looking at a show today on how to take the harvest with you. It's easier than you think, actually. Preserving the harvest, our topic today, an episode as hands-on as you can envision. We are your host, Helga Helberg. Mark and Sitarani Palomar. <laughs> <laughs> Sad to see the abundance go away, huh? It doesn't have to. It doesn't uh, have to. I just made tomato sauce <laughs> yesterday. Just from the abundance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of abundance, this is actually not a very good segue, but what I want to dive into is um, the very interesting article that I read on Mother Nature Network that was talking about maybe an abundant list of qualities. We're talking about 10 qualities of a great community leader. And it was things like self-awareness, empathy, an eagerness to learn and adapt. And I was reading through these things and I was thinking, well, these are the kinds of things we want to see in any leader that we elect in this country. And we're getting close to that time of year again. November is election month, whether it's a presidential election, a midterm election, or an off-year election, general election. There's something going on in November. And this is our opportunity to look at the qualities we most admire and pick a leader who emulates those. And something that is a little bit of a, a concern for me now at this age, I don't think I was aware of it when I was 21, 18, whenever I first started voting, is that if you are not excited about who your presidential candidates are as far as options are when it comes to a presidential election, you have a chance to affect who ends up in the presidential election by voting <laughs> in the other elections prior to the presidential election. I mean, every... Every politician gets his start somewhere, whether it's on a school board or a water board or whatever, they started somewhere. So it's important to continue to cultivate the things that you value in the people who speak for your community. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it, uh, for the last several years uh, with the voting numbers that we've had or have not had, you know, who served when you don't vote? You're certainly not served when you don't vote. I mean, the, the things that you aspire to, you were talking about people, but even just the actions that you're looking for uh, to happen in your community to make your communities better. You know, up in Sonoma, they were talking, they're, they're trying to ban leaf blowers, gas-powered leaf blowers, right? And so it's a big deal because people are saying, you know, people have forgotten how to use them and but the, it comes down to where a city council is going to make that decision on whether or not there should be leaf blowers or not leaf blowers. And you think, well, that's a small thing. 
but those decisions affect your life every single day. Oh, yeah. And who you elect to a city council, or like you said, even the water board can have an effect on the quality of water where you live. Yeah, and if you if you look at what's really at stake, um, I, I crunched some numbers, and um, of all people here in California where this show is produced um, that are in a in a voting age that are eligible to vote, only 65% are registered, which makes California one of the worst places, actually. Um, 45th in the United States to uh, for, where voter participation is at the bottom of the barrel. Um, and at the same time, I know this saying that if California sneezes, the rest of the country has a cold or the other way around or something. <laughs> I, so, caught that, I caught that cold. That? Yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah um, you're not, you're not born in, in the state, but isn't it a saying that, um, if California, if California goes, has a cold, so the goes, rest, exactly. The rest, the rest of, of the, the country, country sneezes. And, um, so these, you know, the, the California election as any, anyone else throughout the country, uh, is critical to defining, as you say, Mark, the quality of life on every level. But I was stunned by knowing that only 65% of people who could vote are actually registered to vote, and then a much smaller number of those, actually half, um, actually vote. So the people that could vote and the people that are registered that are not going to vote are the vast majority that are actually not casting their opinion. And for good reasons. I do think that um, the political system is not as intact as it should be in a well-working democracy. For example, coming from Europe, uh, Switzerland in most elections has a 96, 98, 100% uh, voter participation. They have elections on any kind of issue and measure once a month, every, every other month, and everyone goes. It's part of the culture. Um, when in Germany, the elections results come in and it's anywhere below 65, 70%, it's in the news because it's that bad. So there are countries that have traditionally a much higher participation. And, um, you know, for good or for worse, um, I do think the democratic process works much, much better. It works only when you participate. Really, that's right. what it comes down to. So there's never a good reason to not participate, is what you're saying. Yeah, frustration is understandable, but you, we won't be able to change it. People who are not showing up right. is us not voting, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yes, we do need to be part of this democracy if we want to change it, if we feel like it's not and, and exactly what we want. Yeah, democracy takes constant vigilance. You have to participate in a democracy if yes. in order for it to be a democracy. But I love that segue anyway, selecting, electing, electing organic vegetables. You're listening to an organic conversation. <laughs> I'm Helge Helberg. <laughs> and how you got there, I don't know. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And topic. I do appreciate that you saved that segue because I did not yeah, do a no, good it job. It was beautiful. Preserving the harvest, it's easier than you think. Our topic in this hour with a wonderful guest who will guide us step by step through the process of how to pickle those carrots and um, mm -hmm. dill those beets and whatever else we will find <laughs> out. It's really a show for Mark, how to take the fall bounty with you into and through the winter. Um, but before we dive fully into that topic, as always, every week, he is Sita Rani Palomar with her look at the world of health and beauty. Here's Sita with her holistic bite. Well, today I want to talk about a really fantastic protein source that is virtually free from fat and is packed with fiber. And if you don't already know what it is, it's beans. I thought it's quinoa. 
<laughs> quinoa is also a fantastic protein source, but today's topic is about beans. And one hesitation that people have to cooking beans is that they don't actually know how to do it properly. And if you don't know how to cook it properly, you're less likely to eat it. And another thing that keeps people from making beans is that they historically have been known to be hard to digest. So today, I want to give you some tips on how to handle both of these things. My first tip is soak your beans. And this, hap this helps on both fronts. When you soak your beans, you neutralize enzyme inhibitors. They're actually compounds in the beans that block your body's ability to absorb the enzymes. And that will help you digest it better when it comes time to eat it. But the soaking also helps them cook faster. So the way that you want to do this is if you use one cup of beans, you want to use about three cups of water to soak it overnight. And in the event that you don't have time to do the overnight soak, you can do what's called the hot soak method. And that is by putting your beans in a pot, covering them with about three to four inches of water over it, and then boil it for five minutes, remove it from the stovetop, and then let it soak in that warm water for about two hours. And then you'll get a similar effect. It helps, like I said, to speed up the cooking process and it will make it more digestible because you've neutralized those enzyme inhibitors. Because in both of these situations, after you're done soaking, you're going to drain and discard the soaking liquid and discard all of those enzyme inhibitors with it. And then you're going to start with fresh water. So if you're doing a bean soup, you'll use about four to six cups of water for one cup of beans. If you're going to do your beans as an entree or as a side dish, then you only need about about three to four cups, and then you'll end up draining off whatever is the leftover liquid. So another thing that's really crucial in helping you to digest beans and have a more pleasant experience doing so is to use an, an ingredient like kombu, which is a sea vegetable, or bay leaves. Both of these ingredients you can put into your water when you're cooking your beans, and what they do is they help to make it more digestible, particularly help to make it easier on your intestines. It gets rid of whatever kind of discomfort you may usually experience when you eat beans. And there are a couple other tricks that I've heard over the years that help on that front. Something like Cook, the cook twice rule, which is you, you put your beans and you bring them to a boil, and then you take them off, you drain that water that was in the first boil, you add new water, and you reboil and cook with that water. That's the cook twice method. I've also heard of another one that's called um, bring to a boil three times, where you put your pot of beans on the water or on the stove, you bring it to a boil, you turn it off. You bring it to a boil, you turn it off. Then you bring it to a boil the third time, and that's the time when you cook it. And then another thing is to skim any foam that floats to the top, skim that off. So these are three tips, whether they're old wives' tales or whether it's from, you know, scientific research, but these things are supposed to help combat whatever kind of intestinal discomfort you might experience when you eat beans. So last thing, beans are hearty ingredients and it takes a lot for them to absorb the salt and you want them to have some salt in them so that the flavor is better. But if you put salt in the water that you cook the beans in from the beginning, you'll get tough skins. So you want to use about a quarter of a teaspoon to begin with, and then the rest of the salt you want to add in the last 10 minutes, and that will give it ample time to absorb that seasoning and amplify the flavor of the beans, and you'll get an improved texture. So basically... That's how you do it. You can experiment with black beans and cannellini beans and navy beans and pinto beans and all kinds of things. Find what gives you more protein, 
great fiber, virtually no fat, and is enjoyable to eat. That was this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. Well, and interestingly enough, is right now is when beans are being harvested. So you don't think of beans as having a season, right? I think that's why Sita picked the topic. (laughs) It may be. It may be why she picked this topic. Interesting correlation there. Yes, season. Yes. (laughs) Is that um, they are being harvested now. And so though we see beans year round, they, like if Jacob's cattle beans, a lot of those really beautiful scarlet runner beans are not the more, right. most common ones you see in the store, but they are so flavorful. I just had a bowl of Jacob's cattle beans the other day at a restaurant with eggs. It was fantastic. And so there's a lot out there and knowing how to cook them make, means that you're more apt to maybe try some of these other beans yes. once you've mastered black beans and pinto beans and a few of those more standard beans. Yeah, aduki beans, anasazi beans, black-eyed peas, which are peas, but you get them dried and they mm-hmm. cook the same way as that, beans that do, That would be my question, Mark. You were just talking about this year's harvest. Those are fresh beans, right? Do that? Sure. Does it vary between the cooking methods, between dried beans Absolutely. and cooked beans? Well, and these fresh are beans? dried now. So that's oh, what I'm you talking about. Oh, you consider them dried already? So that's where we come... may have had our miscommunication. Yeah. Right now, the beans <laughs> that you were eating fresh a month or so ago, or maybe a month and a half ago, uh, now, are now I'm... you allowed those ones in the pods to dry. Right. Because most of those shelling like beans, is what they're ready. called, is you can eat them fresh, but they're, they're meant to allow to get dry to, within the, the pod, winter. and then you use them as a storage bean. Yeah, it's always interesting when I hear from somebody and they say, um, I, I, I had fresh garbanzo beans the other day and they were green. And I'm like, well, yeah, beans, you know, beans are green before they're dried, Bean, before they get that beans color. Come fresh they have a different they flavor. Don't. There are lots of things you can do to experiment. <laughs> fresh fava beans versus dried fava beans, very different experience. So that's so really yummy. key is, we're, is we are talking about dried beans, all the beans that have been, have been allowed to dry on the vine and have been harvested now, not a fresh bean. When I say they're in season, Dry beans are in season. Yeah. Right? They're just, those are being sure. harvested now. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Sita. Preserving the harvest, it's easier than you think, one bean at a time. Our topic today, especially for Mark, who's always heartbroken when this fall's bounty does not translate into the winter months. But with this show, we will guide you through the process of how to do that. We have a fantastic guest coming up. More on that when we come back. This is An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Wilkay. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Bryant Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. 
You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic today is preserving the harvest, this bountiful time of the year, um, last month, this month, and maybe a couple of weeks more, but um, it will be gone, and we will tell you today on how to make it maybe throughout the winter and enjoying what is in the stores and in your fields and in your gardens now last for much, much longer. It's easier than you think. Preserving the harvest. And with us is uh, a pickle goddess, bead whisperer, um, the founder and headmistress of the Institute of Urban Homesteading in Oakland, California, uh, Ruby Bloom. Are you with us, Ruby? <laughs> Hi Ruby, welcome Hi. to the show. It's such Hi, a, thank you. Yes, it's such a pleasure to have you, and um, it's so timely in in the best sense of the word word because right now we are looking at maybe the most exciting time of the year. Uh, the uh, summer vegetables are fading quickly. Um, there are still some really good items out there. Fall is fully here. The winter vegetables are coming in, and and yet. Is there a way to carry this bounty and the flavor and the sense of, of abundance through the winter months with you? And of course, there's nobody better to answer that and to guide us through the process um, than you. So thank you very much for joining us today on this show, Ruby. Uh, we live in a society where you know, most people have maybe a couple days of food in their fridge. We are used to going to the grocery store at 11 at night if we forgot something and get that milk that we didn't pick up before, whatever it may be. Um, if that was not available, uh, we, you know, we would be running out of food very quickly. So in addition to the beauty of pickling, there seems to be an, a psychological element that I'm feeling knowing that somebody has two, three weeks or maybe even a couple months of um, items jarred at home and you don't, you, know, you, don't, you don't need to look at the opening hours of your grocery store to be okay, to know, you know, there's always a jar of pickles I can open and I'll be fine if something happens. We're not even talking emergency, but just knowing to have food at home for weeks and weeks. Um, what, what angle do you take on all this? Why do you love urban homesteading? Uh, well, you know, for me, I will say I start preserving in um, the minute there's bounty. So I start preserving usually in April and, and May when the raspberries start, and I preserve using different techniques all the way through now. And I eat from my garden every day of the year. Wow, what a Including, I'm in California, so we do have some winter greens that produce all the way through the winter, but a lot of times it's not what I'm picking out in the garden. <laughs> I'm either taking something from my freezer or taking something canned down sure. from the shelf. But something or, that you grew, uh, and so you, you eat from your garden literally every day, even if it's not harvested freshly. Almost every That's day, amazing. yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. And so, you know, what I think is my take on that is that... Um, it's good for my spirit and my soul. And there's that sense of, like, um, I'm eating this food that has this embedded abundance of, of uh, and a very personal and intimate relationship with my food. I grew that food. For sure. 
right? And I'm not going to a grocery store to buy something that's been shipped from 5,000 miles away. You know, if you're eating tomatoes in, in winter here in California, they were shipped here from Chile. Instead, I'm, I'm unwrapping, you know, a, a, canned, uh, a jar of canned tomatoes that I grew right here in my backyard um, several months earlier. So, so it's, it's really a wonderful feeling. It's not only wonderful um, in, in terms of the feeling, but also in terms of the environmental impact. You know, food that came from right oh, here um, has done much less to damage the environment than something that's coming from 5,000 yes. miles away in the middle of winter. Certainly. And so how does that create a celebration for you, Ruby, when you <laughs> know that you've taken stuff out of your garden, you've said that it affects you, in a spiritual way, as well as uh, obviously getting to enjoy the food, but how does that how does that create celebration in your life over the next five, six, seven months? I don't really know how to answer that question. I mean, for me, I guess <laughs> you can I, hear it. Actually, I thrive on I thrive on my connection with the seasonal cycles and natures, and and living living in right relation to my environment. And so just doing that is a, is a daily celebration. Hmm. The fact that um, the way I've arranged my life, that I can go outside and see growing things and participate in their cycles every day is a, is a celebratory life to me. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a simple celebration. Um, well, it's certainly something that we can all inspire to. I ha- aspire to. I have to say I'm really inspired by what you said about eating from your garden every day. That would just be a dream for <laughs> yeah, me and for so most fun. people around the world, I believe. So for those of us that don't have gardens, though, that may not yet have a green thumb, <laughs> this is a great time to even go buy bountiful produce from the farmer's market or what is in season right now that you can get because you're not going to be able to enjoy it in a few months when it's no longer local. So taking a look at those things, how do you make them last? What are the different techniques of preservation that you would apply to these foods? And why would you choose one technique over the other? Okay. So first, I want to just um, tag and say, yes, work with your local farmer's markets. Um, So the first step is, of course, to procure the produce. If you're not doing it yourself, you want to find a good source of local vegetables and fruits. And a lot of times if you talk to those people at the farmer's market, they'll give you their seconds or their ugly fruit for a fraction of the cost. And so I I have a few vendors that give me their ugly fruits for a dollar a pound. Wow, that's a great price. Yeah, and so, you you know, if if you start making a relationship with the different farmers, you can get that. And then in terms of ways to preserve, so um, there's there's a lot of different ones, and it's hard to choose. And the, the reason you would choose is flavor and freshness and nutrition. So let me take you through the ones that I know and that I regularly use. So there's canning. Canning is great because all the energy that takes to do it, you're doing it right away, and then it just sits on the shelf. And it will last indefinitely. But generally, people can the abundance of this year and to last until the next time that there is abundance. Um, the other way to do it is freezing. Now, freezing foods preserves nutrition and freshness even more than canning. For canning, you're applying heat. So, so you know the food is not going to be quite as nutritious. Um, but for freezing, of course, you have to have freezer space. 
Right, so you're going to find a balance between how much shelf space you have and how much freezer space you have. And, and, and Ruby, let me, let me ask you, when you look at a, at a farmer's market display and you choose your, your produce, do you know, or is there a golden rule where you say, soft fruit I would always cook into jam, uh, harder fruit I would cook, cut up and freeze, or, or is it really specific on the item of what you would do with it? I don't think that I personally have a rule of, of thumb. <laughs> Sounds I like mean, you the do. one rule of thumb I have is if I wouldn't put it in my mouth, I won't preserve it. Right? So it's, if it's That's so overripe that you wouldn't eat it in that moment, you don't want to bother with it. But you don't um, look at soft fruit versus hard fruit and then right. kind of know so the general know, gist fruit, of... Um, I, I sort of have a personal bias against, um, like, if fruit is unripe, it's not going to get better. Right by canning it or freezing it. Sure. So you want your you want your fruit in perfect ripeness. If it's a little overripe, yeah, jam is appropriate. Um, you can't do if the fruit is overripe, you won't be able to do sliced peaches because it will just fall apart whether it's being canned or frozen. Sure. Right. So, um, you know, and then other than that, it's just a, a personal preference what we use more of. Yes, because it does it does change the flavor, lots right? And lots of jam. Well, then you might do more jamming and canning. Right, or are right. you a person who makes lots of pies and you want lots of sliced fruit? So then you might do more freezing. That makes perfect sense. We're speaking with Ruby Bloom, founder and headmistress of the Institute of Urban Homesteading in Oakland, California. That website is IUH Oakland, Institute of Urban Homesteading, IUHOakland.com. Um, and our hour this time preserving... The harvest, it's easier than you think. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Ruby, we'll take a super quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. NextSpace brings together a professional, collaborative workspace with a warm, supportive community. It's a place where you can do your very best work. And now, NextSpace is introducing NextKids, a workspace that also provides great on-site child play care. Hi, I'm Diana Rothschild, founder and chief mom of NextKids. We believe that you can be a better parent and produce better work when you seamlessly integrate work and life. We're better together. Join this conversation at nextkids.us. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. And I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Our topic today is preserving the harvest, how to take the false bounty into and through the winter. It's easier than you think. We're speaking with Ruby Bloom, founder and headmistress of the Institute of Urban Homesteading in Oakland, California. Again, that website is iuhoakland.com. Com. So Ruby, right before the break, you were touching on a couple things that you really love to do 
freezing and canning is two ways to preserve some of your favorite items that are out there right now. But let's talk about some of the other ones too. And, and you yeah. were saying it really comes down to personal preference. How would you enjoy consuming this fruit or vegetable? So tomatoes, for example, you could can or you could dry depending on how you use it. What do you like to do with what's available right now? Can you give us some examples? Well, I'll give you an example from what's available in my yard here in California right now. So I have abundant tomatoes, and I'm sort of done with um, making sauce. I've made tons and tons of sauce already this summer, and so now I'm dehydrating tomatoes. And they're ultra-ripe. They're a little mealy, so, you know, the texture's not so good for eating fresh, but dried it doesn't matter, and you can dry any kind of tomatoes, and they're like candy. So, I mean, you can use them in all the ways you use sun-dried tomatoes, or you could just munch on them from the bag. So I really do like dehydrating um, the tomatoes. Um, I also love um, roasting them, which is not really preserving, but you could roast them a little bit and then preserve them in the fridge. Um, The other thing I like doing right now, now it's apple season. And so it's time for um, both dehydrating apples and also making applesauce and apple butter. Um, you could also uh, crush and make apple cider and preserve that. So, um, so apples are really happening right now. And on the tomatoes, if you put them in the, the oven to roast them, you, you will extend their life, right? Yeah. You can get like several months out of that or? Uh, probably not several months. You could roast them and then freeze them. Um, but, yeah, roasting them wouldn't be such a, a preservation menu. It's but, a, a technique it's more something to do with them right now that's a that's a wonderful thing to do but when you roast them you could drench them or even cover them entirely with olive oil doesn't that seal any oxidation and with that uh, you know you too? really don't want to preserve anything at room temperature in olive oil especially something fresh um, that actually creates the danger of botulism which is the only thing that can kill you in home preservation is botulism. Oh, great. I um, ran right into it. Yeah, so, so uh, if, if your food is acidic, you don't have to worry about botulism. It cannot live in an acidic environment. But even though tomatoes are acidic, if you add a lot of oil in there, the oil can coat the botulism spore. And what botulism likes is, an, is a, um, a non-acidic, so a low-acid uh, non-aerobic environment so um so yeah you, you don't want to store things fresh things room temperature and olive oil so when you, you can s- do dried herbs um uh, and dried stuff in olive oil at room gotcha temperature. and if it's tomatoes if it's if you dry tomatoes first and then put them in olive oil you want them in the fridge and you want to eat them within you know a month or so now there's the exception if the tomatoes are completely dry and there's no moisture in them then it's okay to put them in olive oil See, good. So it's a little tricky with olive oil. So well, you know, with if you're going to do something in olive oil, you want to read up on it and learn the do's and don'ts. Good but, to know. But generally, you know, um, I would say generally, probably just as a rule of thumb, just stay away from trying to preserve things in olive oil because yeah. because there is that danger until you know exactly the do's and don'ts. I love what you said earlier. This makes so much sense. And those things, you know, I don't think of um, when you preserve food to to know if you bake a lot you like the the jam the pies that world if you use your um, apple slices just for smoothies for example you don't need to go through the work of jamming them because just 
cutting them, maybe putting them in sugar in the freezer, um, wh whatever you would do there. Um, depending on the use later, you just need to know how you're going to use it. That very much defines the way to preserve uh, right. the right but way. But there's also right? the, the nutrient issue. And some people, you know, if people are really into raw foods, for example, we all know that our food has the most enzymatic action and the most nutrients the less we cook it. So that's why dehydration is one of the best ones for preserving nutrients. Freezing is also really good for preserving nutrients. And one thing we haven't mentioned so far is fresh pickling. And so that's preserving by lacto-fermentation. And this is one of the best ways to preserve ample nutrients in your food, plus boost the nutrition through probiotics. So what are good things to fresh pickle that you would see right now? So right now, um, cabbages. So all your brassicas, if you still have cabbage in your garden, of course, cabbage is very traditional sauerkraut. All of your root vegetables. So I have lots of beets and carrots going right now. They're still in the ground, and I can pull those up and fresh pickle them. Um, cucumbers are a little past, though, of course, people love pickled cucumbers. Um, and um, a lot of your greens you can pickle. You can pickle um, green beans. So there's really a wide range, and, and traditionally, you know, all the fresh stuff got pickled, and then it got stored without refrigeration in a root cellar. And I know you guys wanted to talk about root cellars, so there's yep. one use for a root cellar and um, we, would be to store your fermented pickles. We did have a great episode with Sandra Katz, who really dove in with us on the world of pickling and fermentation yeah. um, just a few months back, and so this show really goes hand in hand. Um, with that episode, if you're interested in looking that up, go to anorganicconversation.com and also always um, for more tips and recipes on this episode, facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. And we are now also streaming. If you want to see Mark's produce shirt, go to talkstreamnetwork.com where this episode now airs as a video podcast. We're speaking with Ruby Bloom, founder and headmistress of the Institute of Urban Homesteading in Oakland, California, in this hour on preserving the harvest. It's easier than you think. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And yes, root cellars. Mark. Well, Ruby, you know, when I hear the word root cellar, it almost reminds me of something from the past, like you remember from reading Little House on the Prairie or something mm -hmm. like that. And, Where but, do you live? <laughs> yeah, that's because what I always ask. Everybody's got a root cellar. Okay, well, I I live in California, so I'm just. I'm <laughs> well, there just, you go. It's I'm, a West Coast problem. <laughs> I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you my perspective, and yeah, so I know. that's why I wanted to, you know, show what are the benefits of a root cellar, and um, can someone create a root cellar type environment in their home to where they could, uh, you if know, you don't, if you don't have a cellar. If you don't have a cellar, right. Um, well, so root cellars are really useful things. If you, um, the reason I mentioned the Midwest is because in places where there's real winter, you can't actually grow biennial plants without a root cellar. So, and the reason you would grow a biennial is to save the seeds. So if you want to save the seeds from carrots or rutabagas or any of those, you have to dig them up in the winter, store them in your root cellar, and replant them in the, in the spring. And that's why they're called a root cellar. Um, Root cellars are, are dug down deep enough that they stay at a constant 55-degree temperature all winter long. So they're great for storing your potatoes, your onions, 
your beets, your apples, where they won't either rot or start to sprout. Uh, they're also really useful for a host of homesteading uh, techniques. You can store your fermented pickles there without refrigeration. It's a great place to age cheese or dry your salamis, cure your meats. And so they're really a wonderful um, thing that we've lost here on the West Coast and in many urban environments. So if, if um, your house doesn't have... Go ahead. Yeah, if your house doesn't have a cellar at all, as many new modern homes don't, um, you need that 55-degree dark place, uh, which you might not get in your garage or only in certain places, or there's a temperature variance that might you know, prohibit you. Um, how about digging it, digging just a hole in the soil? Would that work if you cast it out with like maybe some tarp? Or are, is there any way to, to make a cellar if you don't have one? Yeah, um, yes and. So um, there are a lot of low-tech methods. People dig a barrel, like a wine barrel, into the ground. I've heard of people taking an old refrigerator and digging it under. To really um, reach that 55-degree constant, um, you need to go about eight feet down because wow. any um, higher than that, you're getting a lot of the effect of your whatever the weather is. Um, but uh, you can look up low-tech um root cellars online, and you'll see designs for, um, you know, for barrels or other things, uh, just holes dug in the ground and then covered with sand and a blanket. And, of course, um, you know, I have to admit I've never done it um, just because it seems uh, to get deep enough and have it be really effective. I'd had to give up a lot of my garden space, which I, uh, which I, I covet, right? I only have a tenth of an acre, and so I don't bother sure. to spend some of it digging a big hole. Yes. But, um, but I think it's possible, and I know people who have done it. Well, and I think that that's saying a lot because you really are the, the goddess of homesteading and you know how to keep your ingredients so you can enjoy them year round. So if you haven't found the need for a root cellar, you found plenty of other ways to enjoy the abundance, then we all can too. So it's been very inspiring speaking with you, Ruby. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope oh, that, you're very welcome. I know there's more, talking to you all too. there's more information on your website, Institute of Ur Urban Homesteading. Check it out in Oakland. That's I-U-H. Oakland.com, and that is Ruby Bloom, the founder and headmistress, pickle goddess, beat whisperer, really expert on how to take this bounty right now at the farmers markets and in your own garden, perhaps into the winter and through the winter. And just like Ruby, perhaps eat from your own garden in one way or another every single day of the year. How beautiful! Yeah. What a beautiful notion! Thank you so much, Ruby. Thanks, Ruby. Have a great day. You, you too. too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> and we are fun. transitioning right into our next segment along the lines. What's in season? You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Life's a game, and so is work. And just like any game, sometimes your team is in a slump. Maybe it's a new team. Maybe there's conflict. Maybe you're under pressure to keep up with your own success. Whatever it is, it is time to get your game face on. The ultimate game of work combines game design with executive coaching to create high-engagement workplaces. Boost your team's creativity and performance by designing the game you want to play and win together with the ultimate game of work. Enticed? Learn more at ultimategameofwork.com. 
Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit Earl's Organic. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. And I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And this is Mark's show all around, How to Preserve the Harvest. It's easier than you think. Our topic today, we just spoke with Ruby Bloom, founder and headmistress of the Institute of Urban Homesteading in Oakland, California, with a whole bunch of tips of how to make this fall bounty last. And what is this fall bounty? Well, Mark will tell us. Here's our very own Mark Mukehi with What's in Season. And that's right. That's right. I have theme music. Um, So one of the things that people really think about when they're buying fall produce is pears. You see many, many varieties around. And... Um, so I asked Earl to be on the show today, Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco produce market from Earl's Organic in San Francisco to be on and to talk about the pear crop and the different varieties and and what it's going to be like and what we should be looking for. And do we have him? Earl, are you with us? Yes, I'm right here. <laughs> Hello, sir. Earl, it's pear time, those oh. beautiful green yeah. globes yeah. of joy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really true. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, yeah, you say that. You know, there are so many varieties, and and again, you have kind of a two a two seasons in in uh, pears. You get the fresh pear that's being harvested now, and of that fresh pear crop, some pears get stored, and then you 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 see them again when they come out of storage in in the first of the year. So this is a time of year to enjoy the fresh pear. Wait, can and I just clarify? The fresh so pears, you can break them down into. Some of the ones we know pretty well, like a Bartlett. I call that a summertime pear because it gets harvested first in late July and August in California, which I think has the best Bartlett pear. Then they go, goes up north, the harvest goes up north into Washington and Oregon. There's another pear that's incredibly similar to a Bartlett, and that's called a Stark Crimson. That is a beautiful red pear. And that's a, there's also a variety called a Red Bartlett, but the Stark Crimson is full deep crimson, and as it ripens, it actually takes on a more brilliant red, deeper color, and the flavor is just outstanding. The, the skin actually softens, and it, and it has this incredible, delicate, floral um, uh, flavor to it. That, that is the pair, I would say, to look for this time of year, because it's, that doesn't store particularly well because it's so delicate. Now, all that being said... We're looking for a great, uh, a great crop this year. Uh, the weather's been very accommodating, uh, not too much moisture. We had some really wonderful warm days, some great cool nights because pears need a certain amount of chill hours. That means hours uh, under 32 degrees to really uh, put the, the trees to dormancy, which allows pears to get better flavor. Yeah, any any piece of produce that needs some chill hours is just so nice. It's the so, kind of produce I want yeah, to hang with. Simpatico. <laughs> Need some chill hours here. So, Earl, can I clarify something that you said at the beginning? <laughs> you said that right now they're fresh, but beginning 
in January, they're coming out of storage. So now is the only time we're actually getting fresh pears? Well, yeah, well, not unlike fresh apples. Um, you know, the technology has allowed us to develop uh, systems that really hibernate the fruit, if you will. It takes the fruit all the way down to uh, kind of a suspended animation where, they can, where the, the atmosphere is con- con- completely controlled with nitrogen and oxygen, so there's no ripening. So, in other words, to extend the season, early, you know, hundreds of years ago, we had a, a, um, a root cellar. We, we were just we, talking about root cellars. We had a harvest in, in August in September and October, and you put your root vegetables, your carrots and potatoes, and then try to stretch them out over the winter. So think of that now as technology. They have these huge refrigerators, walk-ins, and they seal them. So part of the crop gets harvested and sent out immediately, and another portion of the crop is stored in sealed large containers where it's completely um, controlled the atmosphere is completely controlled, and it's called controlled atmosphere. So this is the time to get them fresh, and then how, how do you pick them? Oh, um, I'll tell you what, the, the best way is by color. Again, um, you want them firm. With a pear, you want them firm because they, they, you, they're picked firm. You can't pick uh, a tree-ripened piece of, uh, piece of pear because uh, they, they break down in, uh, internally from the inside out, so they'll be. If you if you pick a ripe pear off a tree, it's it's, it's too soft and grainy. It's it's not it's not good. So select a firm pear. It should be have good color. It will ripen on the counter. It takes a couple three or four days, and the color changes. Whatever 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 color starts with, it almost always gets darker and maybe kind of a golden background color. You want to feel it by the stem. It should give you a gentle pressure. Now, you can refrigerate a ripe pear uh, that'll give it another couple days, but sometimes that's a, that's a, it's a process of learning, so it's kind of an experiment. Uh, cut into a pear when you think it's ripe, and then you can determine, I need a couple more days, I need another day, maybe this afternoon, or maybe, wow, that's a little too grainy, maybe that's a little overripe. Nice, I like it. And there's a, there's a spectrum of that because I I personally like pears pretty crunchy, and I know Mark, you like your pears a little softer. Yeah. Now there are some pears that the texture is more crunchy than smooth. You know, there's a, there's a whole you know um, the wonderful thing about picking out fruit is that you know you look at the color and the shape and sure. you understand the the texture and nice. the flavor and the sweetness. <clears throat> and what's so wonderful about pears too is all the things you can do with it, whether you bake it or poach it or stew it, eat it uh, fresh with cheese, uh, make a spread out of it, pickle it, uh, dry it, juice it. Pretty wonderful, versatile piece of fruit. You seem to like I pears. would think so. Yeah, it I sounds get like a there's feeling. a pear love affair. <laughs> <laughs> pear love affair. Pear love affair. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you, Earl. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots more varieties than the ones we spoke about. Uh, you know, there's a couple really cool ones called a Pharrell and a Seckle pear that are kind of tiny little pears that are hard to find. This is the time of year to find those. Seckle pear and a Pharrell. Excellent tips. Thank you so much, Earl. Such a pleasure to have you on. I can't wait to go try all of these yummy varieties you introduced us to. And, you know, if you go into your produce department and you don't see something, ask for it, because some of these departments just may not be completely hip to what's out there, and you can kind of prod them along and say, hey, I heard about a seckle pear. What do you think?
Well, and that's how we keep these Sounds varieties great. alive. Yes. yes. Eating great. Them. Thank you great. so much, Thanks, Earl. Earl. Thanks for joining great us. Great talking to you all. Thank you. You too. Bye -bye now. See you later. Mark, what's your favorite out of all the ones? Uh, it depends on what time of the year it is. Right now, finishing up Bartlett's. Um, and I'm really liking Concord pears. Um, Concord pears. And yeah, and then in a couple of weeks, there'll be a, a, a different one that'll be ready and ripe. And the star crimson, like he was mentioning, is just a beautiful, beautifully creamy pear. So definitely worth nice. looking for. And that's Mark's What's in Season. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for making it pears. Well, and before we fruit. wrap, we should check in with Helga because I believe you have an organic moment for us. Yeah, we're week. almost out of time. Um, but there is time for an organic moment. Helga's organic moment. My review on the week of what inspired me, what I noticed in the world around me and inside of me. Um, I want to talk about the government shutdown, which costing us as taxpayers about 160 million every single day. One might think that when you shut down your business uh, or anything, that the costs kind of you know go down, but not so because um, the 160 million is actually uh, lost economic uh, opportunity, lost economic stimuli that is put back into the society because the U.S. government is not a business in that sense. It administers our money, our tax money, back through the budget, for example, to many social projects and products and programs um, that are being uh, handed out and administered and made available for people in the U.S., <clears throat> including uh, you know, food aid, uh, food stamps, all that. So all the federal programs are now affected by it. And again, $160 million or so every single day is being held back. That does not make it back into the economy. What's interesting, though, is um, an observation I had visiting a state beach, or actually, it's a, I guess it's a national beach. It's under the national park jurisdiction in San Francisco. It's uh, Chrissy Fields. It's a c city beach. It's a beach within the city, um, always packed with people. And I went there um, a few days back um, with my dog, and uh, I noticed, of course, it was blocked off. There was this classic sign, because of governmental shutdown, this beach is closed. Well, you can't really shut down a city beach. So it was, it was as packed uh, as it would be on any uh, day when the government is not shut down. But it was interesting to really experience the difference in the feeling. There was no cars on the parking lot, and maybe that was the reason... Um, for what I experienced, uh, there was a, a big barricade to even enter, but, you know, people were using the beach anyway in the parking lot. There was a group of, of youth playing football and having a, a glass of wine or champagne with that, which is two no-nos. You can't play football in the parking lot and you can't have alcohol at a, a national park area. Um, there were people using the showers, the outside showers that are for maybe a couple of the surfers that use the beach to wash off their dogs, which is a health issue, or it's not allowed because of supposed health issues. Um, nobody seemed to care. Nobody, um, every, everyone get, got along. It was the sense of harmonious, figuring it out, good people um, enjoying just the, the mellowness of, of no governmental oversight. And it was really an, uh, a more harmonious day than than when the government is not shut down. So maybe it was just that day, but it did prompt me to wonder what we will learn from this governmental shutdown. If social services and everything the, the government administers should 
continue and go up, perhaps education, everything that is governmentally funded, but perhaps governmental oversight when we are told that, um, you know, we would get into a, a chaos in this country without any governmental oversight. And I'm not, say, I'm not proposing any governmental oversight, but maybe a little bit lighter on that side would be good. There was a self-regulating feeling that people are good and people are harmonious and people want to get along and people will get along whether the government is shut down or not. So beautiful, beautiful day. Can't wait to get back to that beach as long as the government is shut down. And that's my organic moment. <laughs> Thank you, Helga. Well, you shared this story with us in advance. And I know there was one thing in particular that was on your radar about the fact that, you know, the, the, the trash is usually right. taken care of by by the, the government that operates the park. So what was your take on that? Are we having overflowing trash bins? I would actually bet they, they were getting full, but I would bet that somebody will figure out, well, you can't enter the park. So, you know, renting a pickup truck, which was my idea, to just drive by and bring him to the dump, right? Pick up the trash because we can. We can completely do this <laughs> ourselves. It's hard to enter, so we would need to schlep the trash to a truck that's parked outside. But I'm so convinced, I so believe in, in people that they will figure it out, we will figure it out. It's, it, that, it had that feeling of self-regulating harmony and um, quite beautiful. So I'm not worried about the trash. It'll find its way out of there in maybe a more recycled recycled way than ever before. <laughs> I think I think there are opportunities for us to step up and take that more responsibility, which it yeah, sounds it like people invitation. really are doing. That's right. Right. Well, thank you for tuning in. That was this week's edition of an organic conversation. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. Said my goodbyes, this is my son.